Good morning again, everyone. Uh, we're continuing in our study of the letter to the Galatians written by the Apostle Paul, and this is our New Testament reading. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. This is the word of the Lord. So a few weeks ago, I was able to spend a number of days, part of the week, with my pastor's group. And these are seven people I've come to know and love and trust over the last nine years. And we meet around the country, but this time we met in Florida. And uh, what was happening a few weeks ago, particularly in states like Florida that had the Powerball? There was a frenzy. People were buying tickets. People that had never bought a lottery ticket before were going to the gas station down the street and buying a lottery ticket. And at this point, it was up to a billion dollars. A billion. That is literally a truckload of $100 bills. So what did a group of pastors do? We all bought tickets. <laughs> but as people who know me would expect, I lost mine. And so I was convinced that that Saturday night that my ticket number was going to be called and I would be out of luck because I didn't have my ticket. But driving back, we were all making commitments to one another. You know, if I win, I promise I will give each of you a million dollars. Not to your church, but to you personally. You have to spend it. We are making all of these plans and commitments, and I had all these ideas. But how many people's lives change for the better when they win the lottery? Almost zero. In fact, there's story after story after story of people's lives being wrecked by all of a sudden getting this type of money. It creates family strife. Friends come out of the woodworks uh, asking for money, asking for loans. And though they get a check for millions of dollars, many, if not most, are dead broke after 10 years or so. So what was I thinking when I bought that ticket? Not me. I can handle it. I can handle that sort of wealth. I would give tons of money away. I would fund all these exciting projects. I wouldn't change my lifestyle all that much, maybe go on better vacations. And in town's budget challenges would be solved once and for all. That's what I was thinking. 
so much evidence that wealth is more of a challenge than a blessing. And Jesus even vividly warns us about the problems of wealth. But I was thinking, not me. I can handle it. Well, Paul is writing to a cluster of churches that he planted who were tempted to say, not me, I can handle it. We can handle it. I can make life work for me. I can meet the standards. I can fulfill the law. I can keep myself pure. And Paul is pleading with them in a very dramatic way. Listen to me. You don't know what you're up against. You can't do life. You can't master life on your own. Why? As we talked about last week, it's because there is this cosmic conflict, these two forces that are at war with one another, and whoever you are, you are caught up in that conflict, and it runs right through the center of who you are as a person. And only if you have the power of the Spirit, Holy Spirit, the presence and power of God Himself can you withstand, can you be sustained. And He wants, first of all, all of us, He wants the Galatians not to be naive about that any longer, to recognize that there is a cosmic conflict that we're caught up in. And He does this. We didn't look in depth at the lists last week when we looked at this same passage, but He gives these two lists that describe this conflict. And maybe when you were hearing me read the passage, you were thinking, "Uh uh-oh, that list describes me. List one nails me. I was reading Facebook this morning, and one of my friends has been on this two-week wine-tasting tour of Italy. Why them? Why do they get to go? I should be there. I deserve that. And according to the list, well, I'm out. I'm disqualified. Or drunkenness which is kind of a a celebrated vice in Portland. And I was kind of out late last night. Well, I'm out. I'm I'm disqualified. Well, thankfully, that's not what he's talking about. He's not saying that you're disqualified from life with God because this first list describes you from time to time. He's saying that if list one describes your life in an ongoing manner and you're not concerned about that, that these things represent you, represent a continual pattern in your life, and there is no struggle, there is no resistance, then maybe you haven't truly taken that step of faith into the family of God, into the realm of the Spirit. So in other words, these lists, before they're a list of vices to avoid and virtues to pursue, they're a diagnostic tool. They're a way that we self-inspect and ask ourselves, what realm am I a part of? Am I still living in the realm of the flesh or the realm of the Spirit? These are marks or results or indicators of who or what is really at the center of your life. You see, these things, flesh and spirit, are realms. They're seats of power, if you will. The flesh, as we talked about last week, is not your body. He's not talking about works of the skin, works of sensuality alone, but Paul is describing all acts that represent human autonomy, that represent the decision to live apart from God, to be the master of your own life. And similarly, the Spirit isn't your internal spirit, but it's God's seat of power in the world. 
He's talking about Holy Spirit, capitalized, His healing presence in the world. In other words, these, are, these lists represent two visions of life underneath two separate kingdoms. So, Paul is first of all saying, don't be naive. Don't be naive about what you're up against. There are powerful, systemic forces in our world. Now, maybe we're here this morning, and we're not really convinced of the storyline. Maybe we don't really agree with Paul that this is the dichotomy, flesh and spirit. But when we look around at our world, as Richard prayed earlier, don't we feel a bit anxious? Whatever our political persuasion is, there's anxiety on both sides, about, especially about the upcoming election. Don't we see evidence of what Paul is describing? We feel powerless up against these systemic forces, systemic corruption, oppression, racism, sexism, tribalism, poverty, violence in our world. How could we as individuals fix those things? They create great deals of, a great deal of anxiety in our lives. Maybe this storyline that Paul is telling is in fact very reflective of what's going on in our world. He's just using different terminology. But even in our personal lives, aren't you frequently frustrated? Aren't you confused by the competing interests that are at work? warring against one another in your own heart and mind? Don't you get frustrated with yourself from time to time? Isn't that an interesting concept? Frustrated with ourselves. You break commitments. Your New Year's resolutions are getting weaker by the moment. You promise never, ever, ever to do, any, do something again, and then you turn around the next day and do that very same thing. And if you say no, then let's talk after church because I'd like to shake your hand. Well, I realize that this text demands something of us. It demands us changing our categories about what the world is really all about and what's going on behind the scenes. It asks us to think of our lives in a different light. He is definitely making a big claim. But this ancient text does, in fact, describe our everyday lives and our everyday experience very accurately. Now, a bit of recall and this is important, we want to set the stage each and every week in terms of why this letter is being written, what Paul is addressing. And these churches that he had planted, he had planted them with one big idea, and that, that is that the work of Jesus is a rescue effort. It is a cosmic rescue effort to liberate them, the Galatians, from this realm of competition and selfishness and discord, and to unite them to a new community, a new family that is living out God's intention of human flourishing. And this family is made one in Christ Jesus. They're united by their equality of need and their equality of status as God's children. They are forgiven and loved by God himself. That's the one big idea that Paul planted these churches to live in and to uphold. But this rival group has come in, and they don't, 
challenge them head on. They don't say, well, Jesus is unnecessary. Quite the contrary. Jesus is a necessary ingredient to your spiritual life and to your salvation. But what they challenge is this idea that everyone is one in Christ. They say Jesus is essential, but you also have to have works of Torah, works of purity laws, of Sabbath, of circumcision. And here's the kicker, that those who don't practice those things, you are to separate from them, the really holy people over here and the not so much over here. And what was happening, and Paul was aghast at this because he loves these people, is that this community was being torn apart. The very thing that he had planted in them is now being negated. And you have, as we gave a preview of last week, not a community that is one in the gospel, but you have two communities that are separated by artificial external markers. Now, if you think about these two lists with that in mind, they function very differently because notice, they begin with verse 19, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery. And maybe to this point, that seems like a fairly unsurprising list because the modern church has tended to focus upon that part of the list, maybe to the neglect of the rest of the list. But notice that over half of the list isn't about personal behavior abstracted from relationship, but it's describing an unhealthy community, a community that isn't reflecting the unity, the oneness of the gospel. This community is not living as if it understands the work of Jesus, and so instead of oneness, there is hatred and discord and jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions and factions. And maybe you've been a part in the past of a church that feels more like that than one. You have people competing over what is the nature of the church and what is best and where should our money go instead of being one and united. And in town has not escaped that perfectly. We're not a perfect church in that regard. And so again, it's a diagnostic tool. Where is in town as a church in terms of that list? Do we see these things going on? And if so, it should be a gut check for us. It should cause us to ask, why? What are we worshiping? What are we looking for? What are we demanding that maybe we shouldn't be? You see, these results are, these are results of rooting your identity in something other than Jesus and what He has done for you. This is a person, this is a community who is turned in on itself, fighting and clawing for what you can get out of life. And other people come to be seen then, of, not of objects of God's love, but as impediments, as hurdles to your success. This isn't flourishing, flourishing, but it's a realm of sadness and exhaustion and fear. This is a community, this is a life that is still in the flesh, not in the spirit. Now, Paul gives us a second list, and it's radically different. It's an alternative vision of life. And this is what life, according to the Bible, is supposed to look like. A community, an individual life, a family marked by love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, 
goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Is that what your life looks like this morning? Is that what your family looks like? Is that what your dorm room looks like? Is that what your church looks like? No matter what you believe when you walked in the door this morning, you've got to look at these lists and think, you know, I don't want to live in a community filled with discord and jealousy. I don't want to be a person whose life is marked by hatred and anger and rage and self-ambition. Well, neither do I. But which list is easier? Which list do we find ourselves more inclined to? Which list, if we don't think about it and aren't self-reflective, do we find ourselves more naturally performing? For me, it's, it's list number one because it's easy. If you don't, if you're not self-reflective, list one is easy. So, if we find ourselves more naturally gifted at list one, that these are the patterns that we most easily fall into, what do we need to do? What are our options? Well, we talked about, while we've talked about the fact that these are marks, these are lists of evidence before they are a behavioral prescription, these lists do, in fact, implicate our wills. And we can be a person who is intentionally walking towards love, joy, and peace, and etc., or who is content to be governed by jealousy and anger and selfish ambition. If, I, if we want our lives to be different, how do we change? Well, the, the first step, as I mentioned, is recognizing it's no longer being naive about this cosmic conflict, that there are forces that are greater than us and stronger than us, that there's no amount of rule-keeping or law-keeping that will make things any different. Well, maybe you're thinking, well, that seems like a strange prescription. I'm not Jewish. I'm not trying to follow any religious law in order to climb the ladder to get to God. But think with me for a minute, because every human being, every person in this room has standards. We all have standards that we live by. We get them from our parents. We get them from our peers. We get them from media. We have standards that we're trying to live up to in order to feel okay, in order to feel okay about ourselves, or what the Bible would say, righteous or acceptable, that we have standards that we're living by in order to be acceptable to our parents, peers, even to ourselves. What makes you feel acceptable? When will you come into the place where you accept yourself? When do you get to the place where you feel like with confidence that all other people accept you? Every one of us is trying to answer these questions. And we're saying in some way, if I get that, if I possess that, if I conquer that, if I achieve that, then I will be acceptable. Then I will be okay. And if you're trying to answer that question, and you are answering that question at work, then every day is a referendum on your value and your worth as a person. You're like Rocky Balboa. What did he say when he was going to fight Apollo Creed in the first 
movie, nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. And if I can go that distance, you see, and that bell rings and I'm still standing, I'm going to know for the first time in my life that I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood. That fight was a referendum on his entire value, not just as a fighter, but as a person. And if that's true in your life, if there's something that you're aspiring to, to create worth and value, then what happens when you fail? What happens when you lose the fight? What happens when you can't control the opinions of your coworkers or boss or when you don't get the promotion? It's an identity crisis. And I think probably we've all been there. And it's in these situations where the marks of the flesh begin to rear their heads. We may not think of ourselves as an angry person, but all of a sudden we have this pent-up rage and we're driving home after work and we don't know what to do with it. And we start to lash out at other drivers. Because why? Because our person has been given a verdict that means we're not acceptable. All of a sudden, we're anxious, we're snippy, we're envious of the person in the next cubicle over who the boss seems to love and who never can do anything wrong. Or maybe we've staked our happiness, our personhood, our acceptability on our parents' approval, and we've made a series of choices in life that our parents don't agree with, they don't approve of. And maybe our brother or sister seems to do no wrong. They make all the right choices, and we never seem to find the love and approval that we desperately want from those two people that are most important in our life. And because of that, we're not sure anymore who we are. And we don't think of ourselves as selfish people, but all of a sudden, we become self-promotional. We go from one person or experience to the next, hoping that this will finally give me what I'm looking for. Well, the only way out of that, and this is the first thing, the only way to get out of that pattern and that cycle is to begin to approach your work and your family life, all of your relational life, in a way that you have come to believe that the greatest thing about you is what God says about you. Not your coworkers, not your family members, not your peers or your parents. The only verdict that matters, that really matters, is that you are welcomed and loved and accepted by God Himself because of the life, death, and work of Jesus. It is only when that becomes your ruling narrative, when that's who you are. I know I'm not a bum because God has welcomed me and named me and given me new life, and he sings and dances over me. That's how I know I'm acceptable. That's how I know I'm not a bum. And anything short of that is conditional. Anything short of that is negotiable. And you'll always be pushing through life, trying to get to the next thing that will be lasting and permanent. When you know that, when you feel that, when that gets into your guts and into your soul, you can begin to work hard without the results of your work being a referendum on your value as a person. You can begin to love others, not to control them or manipulate them or to extract some kind of affirmation from them because you're so desperate. 
but because you know that you are loved infinitely and without condition, and therefore you have enough to spare. Love begins to overflow. Now, finally, one last contrast as we think about the how. Did you notice when we read the passages, he said, the works of the flesh, but the fruit of the Spirit. And I thought a lot about that this week because it's clearly no accident. Paul usually uses this terminology when he's talking about the two realms. This is crucial, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. What is works? Well, we talked about it's a realm. The flesh is a realm. The works of the flesh is a realm of exertion. It's a realm of self-promotion and self-assertion. It's a realm of frenetic competition and struggle. And you can't ever let up. You can't ever quit because someone else next to you might be exerting themselves more, and you have to stay ahead of the pack. You've got to keep moving. You've got to keep working. You've got to keep asserting yourself. It's exhausting. You can't stop and you can't rest. But the realm of the Spirit, you see, is not works, but it's fruit. It's not frenetic exertion, but it's fruit. You see, a tree bearing fruit is a tree that is healthy and rooted and stable. It can't help but bear fruit. And it's a sign that that tree is alive and healthy. The realm of the Spirit is the realm of inner transformation, not exertion. The inner transformation, the planting of the Spirit in your life is the source of the fruit. It's a place of divine presence and empowerment. It is not up to you any longer. And therefore, instead of a frenetic pace, frenetic competition, exertion, there is serenity and rest and peace. And what does Jesus say? Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, all you who have burdens, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. I will give you what? Rest. Rest. The realm of the Spirit is the realm of rest. It's the realm of letting go, letting down. It's not the realm of going up, but it's the Holy Spirit coming down. So, I ask you this morning, invite you, come to Jesus. Come into that realm for the first time or for the hundredth. Come again and let Him transfer you into the realm of spirit, the realm of delight and freedom and rest. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, our world is a frenetic world, and it's a world that won't let up. And we have things clogging our memory. We have uh, our mind. We have things competing for our interest and for our attention constantly. Lord, it's almost impossible to rest. In fact, in our own strength it is. And so, Father, I pray that instead of us leaving here this morning and saying, I got to rest, I got to have peace, would you simply let us rest because you have given it, you have granted it. Let us receive it. Father, as we confess our faith, as we come to the table, would that be a place where we let our guard down, where we admit who we are, where we admit our foibles, our failures, our fallenness, 
and receive the remedy of your grace. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.